Welcome back to A Push for Understanding. This is episode 2 and chapter 12 of Spielvogel, and this episode is all about the Renaissance. So to start off with, the Renaissance is by and large just a nice fancy word um, for the rebirth and kind of beginning of modern Europe. So uh, what do I mean by rebirth? There is this idea that during the Dark Ages and the Middle Ages, um, Europe was going through kind of a lull in its history. There was not a lot of progress socially, economically, intellectually. And so that's why it's known as the Dark Ages or um, the Middle Ages. And uh, kind of the rebirth comes from this idea that the Roman Empire and the Greek Empire and other empires coming out of mostly Southern Europe at the time um, need to be reborn, that Europe can go back to this time of greatness and it, it has a destiny um, to kind of come back as the ruling power of the world. Um, even though, even at the Roman time or the Greek time, they were not uh, kind of the dominant powers of the world that would really go more towards China and um, Korea, who intellectually and culturally had a lot more going for them than the Europeans, but at least to the Europeans' knowledge, because they did not have a lot of knowledge about the lands um, far east, they would not have, um, they would have seen themselves as the superior, um, both because of racism, but also just generally because they have a favor to their society. Wow, that's a tangent. Uh, getting back on course. Um, moving past kind of the 14th century troubles of like the Black Plague of the Hundred Years' War and just general like people dying, uh, famine, disease, you know, kind of the the normal depictions of everybody dying in the streets of 14th century Europe and trying to move past that towards a better future. Um, and kind of on that same page, you have political, economic, and social reform uh, to try and move society forward. Uh, kind of, again, with humanism, uh, you have the returning of the Greek and Roman ideals and ideas of society, but you also have this sort of seed of individualism, but it's mainly more for the nobility and less for the peasants at the time, but I'll touch on that later. And then really what the Renaissance is best known for among the masses would be uh, the focuses on art, focus on people, less focus on religion, and if there is religion, more of a, a human, uh, kind of more in the human ideal. God is more depicted as a person and not really as this sort of myth mythical figure. Um, and that art, again, comes mainly out of Florence, Italy, and Rome, Italy. It's going to be a very Italian-focused episode. Um, and then sort of towards the end, you have more centralized governments, which is going to lead a lot more into things like the Thirty Years' War and the French Wars of Religion. And you have sort of mutters and spurs about uh, maybe the Pope's not such a great guy, which is definitely, definitely, definitely going to come up uh, during the Reformation. However, that the Reformation is not what we're covering right now. So I'm going to stay focused, and we are moving right on to um, Italian city-states. Uh, Italian city-states, sorry. So the Italian city-states are mostly focused around uh, the nobility. The rich really control them. They have their spheres of influence really out of the Italian city-states. And sort of by extension, uh, they're a more secular life. They don't 
they certainly believe in religion, but it's not such a important part of their lives, which again sort of circles back around to the Reformation, um, and just generally like more humanism um, and more individualism, um, kind of viewing yourself as more important that you can uh, strive for betterness um, and that you have control over yourself uh, throughout free will. Um, economically, uh, the during the Middle Ages, Italy's really suffering, especially during the Black Plague, uh, basically shuts down trade throughout um, most of the Italian peninsula and across the Mediterranean, um, which leads to Italian cities like Rome, like Florence, Venice, especially Venice, um, really just economically crumbling. And so you see a slow building up of the Italian city-states, recovering a lot of their lost uh, money and a lot of their lost um, sort of social connections with the Western Europeans and uh, the Northern Europeans. Um, however, at this time, the Ottomans also uh, are seen as seen as a threat to Europe. They just invaded, or they just took over Constantinople, and they are. Uh, knocking at are knocking at Europe's door. They are invading the Balkans. They will eventually get all the way up to uh, Vienna, and really Europe's starting to panic because uh, the Ottomans are a Muslim uh, majority country. Uh, Europe is a Catholic majority uh, continent, so the fear of a Muslim invasion uh, over Europe is both uh, present and also a uh, continuing thing. Um, although this time it's more through immigration and just the EU's fears of, uh, rising immigration from the Middle East and Northern Africa. So that really is kind of consistent. Um, the economic recovery of Europe also, or economic recovery of Italy and Europe as a whole, uh, largely comes out of, uh, the recovery of wool, silk, glassware, metal, and stone, sort of um, mining and making and crafting. But you also have new industries like copper and iron and silver, which leads to, uh, which really comes from better mining techniques. Uh, and this leads to more firearms and bullets being made, which is a, uh, I mean, it's always existed sort of in medieval Europe, but throughout European history, uh, especially during the Renaissance and the Reformation, uh, Europe is going to wane off the longbow and the crossbow and lean more heavily on gunpowdered weapons like cannons, like uh, bullets, or really guns, I suppose, and just generally moving more towards weapons that uh, can kill people more efficiently, which is really what uh, European history is all about, killing people. Um, you also have, along with this revival, uh, the Medici family, a, bank, a massive banking family who uh, becomes so prominent they're handling even the Pope's money, the Catholic Church's money, uh, and they're really able to spread their influence and really are more of a uh, symbolic, um, I guess, symbolic symbol, <laughs> although that's kind of weird to say, a symbolic symbol, I suppose, of um, Italian achievement and Italian growth economically. Um, however, this economic resurgence is really more for the clergy and nobility, uh, the clergy being more spiritual and uh, just kind of priests, bishops, pr um, 
the Pope, and the nobility being like kings, just general nobles, princes, princesses, uh, just people who surround themselves with the king. Uh, those two groups really do um, recover economically. The peasants don't recover economically because they have nothing to recover to. Um, and so that really leads to just general, like, just in general, the peasants do not experience the Renaissance. They more experience just life as normal. If you were to ask someone uh, who was living through the Renaissance how their life had improved uh, throughout their family, they probably wouldn't be able to name any large changes. There's not really a large social change happening within the peasants. It's largely coming from the top and slowly trickling down throughout uh, European history. Um, throughout this time, Italy and Spain are having both slave or are having slaves, importing slaves from North Africa, um, mainly due to the fact that with the Ottomans takeover of the Middle East, uh, they're no longer able to take the slave routes from the East and import slaves to the West. This leads to both a larging or a growing black population throughout uh, Southern Europe, especially in Spain and Portugal. However, um, it also leads to a lot more uh, racism and it's going to eventually impact the Atlantic slave trade uh, throughout uh, the Americas, but also just in Europe generally. Um, at this point, uh, socially, Europe's kind of staying the same, but moving more towards what you'd see in modern Europe. Marriages are beginning to move more towards love and more towards like uh, living a long life together. However, um, there is definitely still the, um, really still the uh, emphasis on political standing and economic standing. So women are often just married off uh, for either political stances, like a princess would be married to a prince to build uh, larger economic and uh, economic ties to a country and political ties to a country. Um, or a woman would be married off in terms of an economically well-off family uh, to another economically well-off family to combine assets, to combine money, and really just to grow each family's influence over their territories. Um, throughout the Renaissance, you see a growing of values. There's kind of the perfecting the individual, or what I like to call like the seed of individualism. Um, and this leads to kind of self-improvement, especially among um, the kings, the nobles, the clergy, uh, less with institutions like the church or uh, uh, like centralized governments. Those do not see much change. Um, the corruption is still present in both, and we'll talk a lot about the corruption within the church um, in the next episode, but um, overall, with this, like, the idea that an individual can improve themselves, that they have um, free will, that they can commit themselves to doing whatever they can, is a, kind of a, a value that comes out of the Renaissance. Um, going back to economics, you, um, sort of towards this time there is, well, sort of before this time there is the Crusades, and this leads to a lot of travel um, to uh the Middle East, especially Jerusalem. 
And throughout this time, uh, the the knights and the warriors in the Middle East are experiencing all these rich uh, or wealthy products from the rich at this time um, because they have the products like silk from India, a lot of glassware from China. They have a lot of uh, wealth from the Persian Empire, from Arabia, from northern from Northern Africa. And so the trade at this time is really booming around the Middle East. And an influx of Europeans has made them notice that um, these other places are doing a lot better economically than them, and that their trade is um, really benefiting their society. And this leads to a lot of goods being brought back from the Middle East to Europe and a more um, sort of wealthy class inside of Europe uh, wanting to expand its trades and expand its influence abroad. And this leads to uh, trading centers like Venice, like uh, Italy at large, and especially Florence being uh, large trading centers and thus being large cultural centers. Um, especially Venice and Florence will be in terms of art, in terms in terms of social progress, in terms of influence, they're going to be uh, kind of the two cities that uh, really hold Europe's hand throughout the Renaissance. Uh, social classes don't really change at this point. The peasants are still not making a lot of money. However, there is this uh, sort of growing rise of new money people, um, and this leads to a lot of marriages between the two groups and just generally trying to expand their wealth even more, uh, and they can combine their assets together. Um, along with this, you have, kind of linking back to those values of individualism, you have this idea of the Renaissance man popping up, um, who is generally noble at birth, uh, which I always find ironic that nobility uh, claim that they're the best because they were born into nobility, like they're writing the rules, and so they they from the very start give themselves the advantage there but they're uh they also find themselves physically gifted especially with weapons like uh with fencing and with archery you see a lot of kings taking up that artistically uh, the renaissance man should be uh, creative and just generally take a value and have an artistic eye and a renaissance man should have classical education so really studying the humanities studying greek culture studying Roman culture, being fluent in Latin, um, and just generally like uh, being able to be more independent from people, not having to rely on translators, not having to rely on, um, you know, a general. So just being able to expand your influence, and you're going to see that a lot uh, through centralizing states, being able to centralize um, their government's more, especially with parliaments, being able to centralize their governments around them instead of parliament. Then we get into uh, what I promised at the beginning, Italian politics. So, uh, Italian politics at this point, the peninsula is divided between uh, a bunch of centralized powers. You have Venice, Milan, Florence, Naples, the Papal States, and Genoa. Um, and these governments are all competing on the Italian peninsula state, are all, sorry, are all competing on the Italian peninsula, uh, but each of them kind of control each other in that they're able to stop one from getting too far ahead and that there's a balance of power between these two. 
um, throughout peace deals, um, the Italian city-states kind of align themselves to be equal, which means that neither neither side would want to declare war or go to battle because there's the chance you can lose. And obviously, uh, if you don't, if you're not entirely confident you can win a war, you're not going to start a war. And that is true unless you have nothing. And these Italian city-states, uh, by being in a balance of power, all have something to gain uh, from being, you know, alive. So these Italian city-states kind of put each other in check by both culturally and socially uh, expanding and thus making their lives better, but also not doing it too quickly to where one of them can get ahead and declare war on the others and kind of monopolize the peninsula. Um, and so, by the way, that uh, kind of peace deal is set up in the Peace of Lodi. Uh, I forgot to mention that ahead. And the alliances are the Papal States and Venice, who uh, kind of team up against Milan, Florence, and Naples. Uh, those two factions kind of control, go back and forth, um, and they eventually kind of lead to uh, peace on Italy, despite, you know, both being, or all sides being kind of uh, very aggressive economically and um, especially throughout warfare. And so we eventually get to uh, probably one of the most influential and most memorable writings of the time you of Machiavelli. Uh, Machiavelli's the prince who says that politicians, uh, politicians are greedy and thus good rulers should be greedy uh, to kind of usurp that power, to fight against that power. Basically, if you're not willing to play dirty in politics, you're not going to be successful in politics. And uh, Machiavelli really calls for this abandonment of morality and abandonment of kind of Christian values, which was uh, really unheard of at the time. Um, throughout Renaissance Europe, you have a rise in education. You have a rise in uh, this idea of liberal studies, just freedom. Um, and a rise in sort of um, mandated education and just um, kind of formalizing education through the printing press. Johannes Gutenberg uh, invents the printing press and it quickly spreads throughout Europe. Venice becomes kind of the printing center of Europe and they print over 20 million volumes um, of literature and art and just uh, copies of things from Venice. Uh, about half of them end up being religious. So, uh, But anyway, that really leads to kind of the standardization of tests of uh, education throughout Europe and allows for or information to travel. You're going to see that a lot with people like Lutheran or Calvin who are able to spread their influence and education to other people more quickly. And you see this more um, just generally throughout, like, um, translations of the Bible, translations for, of uh, the Greek or Romans, uh, like Latin, and just um, education is more able, or more easily able to be taught to people as uh, the printing press comes. Um, and then finally, we have, the again, the most visual and most 
a well-known renaissance. We have the artistic renaissance, which focuses on natural beauty or naturalism, uh, putting humans at the center, like humans are important, and again with like humanism, or not humanism, sorry, uh, with individualism, and also a emphasis on the Greek and Roman gods. Um, there's also kind of two um, styles of art at this time. There's the mathematical art, which uses math and science to try and make more realistic art. And there's also the movement art. Movement art, which is exploring um, kind of the anatomy of people and just exploring the human body, uh, celebrating the human body. And along with art, which is often ignored, unfortunately, there's the uh, architectural style, architectural styles, um, kind of the churches and the cathedrals and the large palaces of the time uh, have a very unique and very um, almost Greek and Roman looking um, architecture to them. So even in uh, architecture, you see this idea of, of holding up the Greek and Romans once again. And then at the heart of, uh, or at the high of the Renaissance, uh, Rome is kind of the cultural capital now, and da Vinci, Raphael, and Michelangelo really are able to spread that influence throughout, um, especially Rome, but also in Florence. And I believe that's all I wanted to say, so I hope you learned something new, and I hope you'll come back for the next uh, chapter, chapter 13, The Reformation.